Well, if you would, please turn in the scriptures to uh, Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Looking at verses 17 through 21 uh, this morning. Last week in verses 12 through 16, Paul exhorts us to run, doesn't he? He says, press on, press on, forgetting what's behind, straining forward, right? There's the finish line, you're straining forward to the finish line. To press on toward the prize of Christ Jesus. But Paul also acknowledges, he acknowledges how hard that is, how difficult that is. How frustrating that race can be. And so we talked a little bit about that. We we know Paul longs to be perfect. He says so in uh, verses 1 through 10 there. He's talking about in verse 11 that he may attain the resurrection from the dead. And, And that resurrection from the dead is when he realizes that that's when he will be perfected. Because in verse 12, uh, he says there, I have not obtained this. I am not yet perfect. And there's a bit of frustration there, right? You, you know that frustration, don't you? Of not being everything that you long to be or ought to be. As you see yourself reflected in the words of Scripture. And so he acknowledges that he is not perfect. Uh, and yet he still presses on, presses on to the prize of Christ Jesus. Even when it's hard, even when it would be easier to give up. But how do we persevere? How do we keep going? Paul, is there any help? Can you help us with this, Paul? Are there any resources for us when it gets tough and when we're tempted to look behind us, tempted to give up even? Well, he does give us some guidance. He gives us some good practical guidance in verses 17 through 21. That's before us this morning. And this guidance is intended to help us to persevere and to press on. So follow along as I read these verses uh, from 17 to the end of chapter 3. Paul writes, brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Would you pray with me once more? Father, we come asking for the work of Your Spirit in our midst. We need your help to understand what you're saying to us here. We need your help to speak to us. We need your help to clarify to us your word and your will in our lives. We need your help with the clumsy words of a preacher 
We pray your help that through this means that, Lord, you would indeed speak to us and that we would hear. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, um, I'm not sure about you, but this week's been one of those weeks for me. Perhaps it's been one of those weeks for you. Well, what kind of week am I talking about? Well, it's the kind of week where my weaknesses and my insecurities, uh, my incompetencies, my insufficiencies, and my failures seem to be in the forefront. I don't ask for that. I don't go looking for that. Um, it just comes. Sometimes out of the blue. I mean, it it comes from just directions you didn't even anticipate. And it's kind of funny, on the heels of a sermon last week, in which I was exhorting us all to press on. And I'm reminded this week, that's really hard. That is so difficult to press on. I've talked to you before about how I feel like I feel like I have too much life left to make it to the end. Does that make sense? I have too much life left to make it to the end in a, in a good stead, in a good form. It's like I'm going to fall flat on my face long before I get to the end. Some weeks it just feels that way. And it's felt that way this week. That can it be all manner of things that you're dealing with as well. And it may not be your weaknesses and insufficiencies as much as it is just it's hard. You got physical difficulties, hard circumstances. You're dealing with difficult relationships, as I prayed, and you don't even know what to do with those things. And it's just wearing you down. And you're so tired. Maybe you've had some disappointments this week. There's some bad news. I bet some of you have dealt with frustrations. Some of you have struggled with sin. Some of you have struggled with temptations. Well, here... I did want to say this other thing too. I want to, you know, sometimes when, I, when I'm dealing with my weaknesses and insufficiencies and incompetencies and things like that, it, it drives me to the understanding that I have those things, but not in a good way in my dependence upon Christ. You know, those things are real. That's who I am oftentimes, weak and insufficient, incompetent. But what I wrestle with is, is not so much, oh, well, I just depend on Jesus then. That's where I need to end up. That's not often where I go. And perhaps you're like me too. It's like, it's like I, I run not in dependence upon Jesus, but more in complaint to God because He didn't give me more gifts. He didn't give me different capacities. Better abilities. And so all these things, they press us, and they ought to press us towards Christ, but oftentimes they press me <laughs> toward complaining 
that he didn't give me something different than this or something better than this. Well, Paul gives us some help, I think, here in verses 17 through 21. It comes in the form of exhortations to some degree. He says here, follow or imitate me. And not just me, but look for those examples. Keep your eyes upon those who walk according to the example that myself and Timothy, Epaphroditus, that we have, that we have set before you. And what he's talking about here is he's talking about those, not that those who are perfect and have it all together. And this is the thing I don't want you to hear. I do not want you to hear that you need to follow the example of those who seem to have it all together. No, you need to follow the example of those who seem to trust in Christ when they don't have it all together, when they're struggling, when they're suffering. And that's what Paul is calling you to here is to follow his example and these other examples, that is living examples within the body of Christ, your brothers and sisters sitting beside you here in these seats, who live dependent and Christ-centered lives. And so that's one thing that he tells us. And then he tells us, too, to remember and to avoid the lamentable alternative examples of the enemies of the cross. And then he tells us to anticipate our glorious future and our true and forever home. But these are not mere exhortations, because within these, is revealed to us God's grace and His gracious resources to and for us in order to continue to press on. Let's get into that. The first thing he says here in verse 17 is to imitate Paul and those in the church who follow Paul's example. Well, what has Paul shown us by his example? Well, he's shown us that he's utterly dependent upon what God has done for him through Christ. And so let's just think together in the book of Philippians about some of those things. In chapter 1 and verse 6, he says, uh, in a sort of introductory way, about the ways in which God has richly poured his grace out upon us in Jesus, that it is God who began the work of salvation in us, and it is God who will complete that work. That's God's grace. In, in chapter 1, in verse 29, he says that God has granted to you that you should believe. That's a gift of God. Even your faith, your ability to believe and trust in God is granted to you from God. That's God's grace. It is God who works in you. In chapter 2, in verse 13, God is the one who works in you to will and to do His good pleasure. It is, it is God at work. It's His grace. In chapter 3 and verse 12, he says there, Christ Jesus has made me his own. And we talked about that last week. And that's the fact that he comes and he captures Paul in his heart. You think about his conversion to Damascus. Again, Paul's not looking for Jesus. He's not looking to belong to Jesus. He doesn't go and choose Jesus. Jesus comes to him and says, Paul, you're mine. And so God's grace, he comes to us in his grace. And then in verse 14 of chapter 3, he has given to us this effective call, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It is God's work, His effectual call, His effective call to us by His Spirit. 
And so Paul acknowledges how dependent he is upon these things. And so that's one of his examples to us. And so he relies upon this grace. He clings to the one through whom this grace is personified. And who is that? That's Christ Jesus, of course. Which is why he prizes Christ in chapter 3, verses 7 through 8, and in verse 14. And this is why he pursues Christ. Chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. So he lives dependent upon and centered in Christ. And he shows by his example how the Christ-centered, dependent one finds joy even in trials. He shows how the Christ-centered and dependent one humbles themselves by thinking more of others than of themselves. And so he has shown in the example of Christ's own lowly servanthood and how Christ transformed Timothy and Epaphroditus so that in them we see examples of selfless service and of selfless sacrifice. They're modeling Jesus' own example themselves. So he's shown us in this little book so far how to live, how to walk in ways that press on after Christ. He has shown how valuable Christ is and how futile our own pursuits of self-justification and self-righteousness is. He has shown us how priceless the death and the righteousness of Christ on our behalf and for us. He has shown us by His example how He demonstrates the wonder of Jesus and the treasure that Jesus is for Him. He follows and pursues Christ and He invites us to do the same. And so He has set before us an example of how to live and how to walk. And so thus he says, imitate me. Imitate what you see, but not only imitate what you see in me, but he uses a very strong word here. Keep your eyes. This is a very strong phrase. It's actually a word, but here in the English it's a phrase. But it's look to, behold, seek out. He's exhorting you to actively be on notice for those around you that follow Jesus the way Paul does. He's talking here about those living examples, the brothers and sisters in Christ, right here in our church, who are humble and dependent upon Jesus, who walk and live their lives in the love, grace, and purity of Jesus. Look for them. Seek them out. Seek to get close to them. Learn from them. Watch how they deal with conflict. Look at the ways that they face trials. Look at how they battle the temptations that come. See how they treat and relate to others. Look at the resources that God has given you. He surrounds you with brothers and sisters in Christ, spiritual grandparents and spiritual parents who model what it looks like to know, to pursue, to love, and to follow Jesus. That's a resource to you. That God has graciously given to you. He has put you in the midst of a people. His people. He's gracious to us and giving us biblical models to follow. We have them all in Scripture. And, and Scripture is, doesn't sugarcoat. It doesn't, it doesn't make people look better than they are. It shows us what it's like to walk by faith. Sinful people walking by faith. And so we have those models in Scripture, but He also gives to us living models to follow, living examples right in our midst. 
humble and Christ-dependent people who live consistent lives of repentance even and of faith. God in His grace provides us with Christ-centered brothers and sisters as examples in scriptures and living among us. So seek them out. Learn what it is to know and follow Jesus from them. In God's grace, He provides His family because following Jesus is not a solitary individual project. It's a community project. And in God's grace, He provides that community. And so we have examples all around us. So look for them. Seek them out. Find them and follow them. He also gives us a contrast. A contrast to the examples that we are to imitate. Uh, Paul exhorts us here in verses 18 to 19 to avoid the lamentable, the unenviable example of the enemies of the cross. You see that in verses 18 and 19. It's lamentable. Their, their situation and circumstances, lamentable because of their destiny. Their destiny is destruction. It's lamentable. We know it's lamentable because it brings Paul to tears. These are enemies of the cross. And here again, Paul is setting for us an example of how do we think about our enemies, the enemies of the cross. These enemies of the cross were likely enemies of Paul. They are likely ones seeking to do him and his brothers and sisters in Christ harm. Or in the very least, they're opposed to the gospel and they put up obstacles to the advance of the gospel. But Paul here is not being vindictive. When you see tears, it's not vindication. It's not being vindictive. It's not revenge. Good, they're finally getting what they deserve. That's not Paul's attitude here. He weeps for them. He sees a plight that is worthy of tears of compassion. Paul understands their destiny, but he also realizes that they are enslaved and they are blind. They're enslaved to their own appetites. That's what it means when it says God is their belly. Their God is their belly. They follow their appetites, and it's not just about food. It's an idiom that can mean they are driven and controlled by their desires. What Silva calls their visceral impulses. They are enslaved to these things. He doesn't clearly define the enemies here. He doesn't tell us precisely who these enemies of the cross are. He has been speaking about the opponents, the Judaizers, who deny the sufficiency of the cross by adding Jewish law-keeping, perhaps and probably including dietary laws. And so in that sense, their belly is their God. So it's not just a matter of indulging yourself, but it's also the, matter, the, the idea of cutting yourself off, thinking that that earned you some righteousness or some kind of standing. But Paul may be as well referring to the surrounding culture where the enemies of the cross are, they, they hate the cross because it calls them to deny themselves. It points out the, the hideousness, if you will, of sin. 
These live to fulfill whatever desires they have, whether driven by self-righteous desires or by immorality. Their God is not outside of them, but inside of them, and they are slaves to their master. It's the sinful nature within, and they are under its dominion. These also glory in their shame. They boast in and push forward that for which they ought to, that ought to bring them shame. How blind they are to call good that which is evil, contrary to God's revealed will. Now this is easily seen in our culture, but it's also in a supposed moral, upright self-righteousness which must delude oneself in imagining that they, in their goodness and righteousness, their own goodness and their own righteousness, are somehow acceptable to God when He has clearly revealed that this is not so. So this is a blindness, and this blindness is sad. It is lamentable. So deception and enslavement, and so Paul weeps. And this lifestyle, if you will, this... The, the being enemies of the cross is also a result of having an earthly or a worldly mindset, living for the here and now. Whether it's striving to be acceptable to God in and of themselves or seeking to squeeze out as much pleasure or joy as they can hope for here and now. As though this is all there is. You know what it's like, the pleasures of this world? It's like chewing a piece of gum. I love to chew gum. It's like I chew a piece of gum and it's like it's fresh, it's tasty, and I chew it for about 10 minutes and my jaws get tired and I can't get any more taste out of it. It's exactly what the things of this world offer us. When we make them the primary thing, when we pursue the good gifts that God has given to us for their own ends and our own ends, our own pleasure, we go after those things and it's so good and tasty to begin with, but it doesn't satisfy. And we sit there and we're trying to chew out some flavor in it and it just wears us out. So what do you do? Get another piece of gum. And the next thing you know, you're, you've gone through the pack. So you go to the store and buy some more. It's futility. It will never satisfy. And so this blindness and this enslavement, it's lamentable. It is sad. You'll be constantly unsatisfied and constantly disappointed. Such as living for the pleasures of this world. Paul weeps for these enemies of the cross. Their situation is pitiful. And Paul's weeping is surely mixed with prayers that God would, by His grace, deliver them as he, Paul himself, was delivered for surely. Here's an example of the enemies of the cross. We see the grace and the graciousness of God in this. Verse 20 talks about Jesus as our Savior. What did He save us from? He saved us from this very lamentable situation, which is exactly where we were and where we would be. 
if he did not show us grace and mercy and come to our rescue, which he did. And thus Paul is pleading with God too to come and deliver these who are blind and who are deceived and who are enslaved. Jesus is the one, He's the Savior, the one who rescues, delivers, and saves us from not only the destiny of destruction, but He also frees us from the enslavement, and He opens our eyes so that we're no longer blind. This is all God's work. This is all His grace. And this points to that. He frees us from the dominion of our bellies. He opens our eyes to the dangers of boasting and what ought to bring shame. And He saves us and delivers us from an earthly, worldly mindset. And in pity for those who remain enemies of the cross, we pray. We pray for them and we proclaim to them. We plead with them through tears because we know unless Jesus rescues, they will be destined to destruction. And we realize and we know that apart from God's grace in our own lives and His rescuing us, we would like them be headed to destruction. So I say to you, if you are in our midst this morning and you are an unbeliever in Christ, aren't you tired of seeking satisfaction out of that which will never give you satisfaction? Aren't you tired of a conscience that you cannot quiet? Would you come and join us in trusting in and resting in and being satisfied in Jesus. So Paul here tells us to avoid this example, but it also reminds us of the grace that is ours because of our Savior and what He rescued us from. He now points us to our citizenship. In verses 20 and 21. So to aid us in pressing on to running the race, He gives to us examples. God does. He gives us examples of those who are Christ-focused and dependent upon Jesus. Brothers and sisters right in our midst to follow and we can learn from Scripture as well. These examples. We see that God saves us. He rescues us by His grace from the destiny, the enslavement, and the blindness of being enemies of the cross. So he gives to us here examples to avoid and examples to pity and to pray for and to plead with. Well, third, we see that God gives to us this notion of completing our salvation. He brings us and will bring us all the way home. Paul encourages us to remember and then anticipate our glorious future in our true home. I want you to think first about the glorious future that is ours. Our Savior Jesus will one day return. We are awaiting Him from heaven. He will return. He will come back on that last day, on the, the, the day of the end, if you will. And we will finally experience what Paul longs for in chapter 3 and verse 11. The resurrection from the dead. On that day, Christ, our Savior, will complete salvation. He will finish our transformation. 
where it says here very plainly, our lowly body will be transformed into His glorious body. Think about that. Our lowly, weak, diseased, incompetent, sin-ravaged bodies will be finally and fully changed into the likeness of His glorious body. Paul struggles in 1 Corinthians 15 to describe this transformation. Words fail and our imaginations are too limited to envision what God has prepared for those who love Him. This is physical. This is bodies. It's talking about real things. Tangible, touchable, real bodies. Like the resurrected and glorified body of Jesus. Notice Paul's emphasis on who does this. It is Christ who does this. He is the one who will do this transformation. It's our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. The word Lord there reminds us that He is the one who has unlimited power. It's the kind of power that's on display in chapter 2, verses 10 to 11, where every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord as He is on His throne. It's the kind of power that we see here in verse 21 that enables Him to subject everything to Himself. He is bringing everything under His control. That's the kind of power He has. And it is this very unlimited power that will complete our salvation, that will transform us into the likeness of His glorified body. This is awfully encouraging to me. It is so encouraging because the very unlimited power of Jesus will accomplish this glorious end. And this very power that's at work or that will do that work is already at work in you and me now. It is the power that rescued us. It is the power that saved us. Our Savior's work has power to save. It has power to change, power to transform us. And even now we are being changed and conformed into His image. This power, brother and sister in Christ, it's unstoppable. It is unstoppable. He has begun this work in you. And He will, with a power that will overwhelm all obstacles, that will overwhelm all hindrances, bring that work to completion in you. Nothing can, nothing will ever stop that work from being accomplished. And think about our true home. Because Jesus has begun this work in us, we belong to His heavenly kingdom. This idea of citizenship, it's really the idea of a commonwealth. It's under His rule, His reign. It's His kingdom, His heavenly kingdom. This is our true home. It's the place where we are from. Yeah, you've never seen it. You've never set foot on it. But it's the place that you're from. It's where we belong. Praise God that we are not defined by where we were born, 
by the circumstances in which we were raised, it doesn't define us any longer. Whether you think that was a good thing or that was a horrid thing, it doesn't define you anymore. Praise God that I am not merely identified by where I am right now, either in my limited strength or in my great weaknesses, in my current struggles or my current situation or my current terrible circumstances. It doesn't define who I am. I, you, we are citizens of our Lord Jesus' kingdom. And this ultimately defines us. And we are defined by where we are destined. And while we may not be perfect yet, He will, by His unlimited power, complete our transformation. So, application, personal application, my weakness and my struggles and my incompetencies and my failures and my trials and my suffering will not and does not in any way limit the unstoppable power of Jesus to transform me and to transform you. He will accomplish His purposes. And as I am reminded of His grace, the things that He has given to me, where He provides for me examples to follow, where He saves me from destruction and deception and enslavement to my own sinful nature. And He has the power to rescue others who are so trapped as well. And I see that His grace, by His grace, He will complete my transformation into His glorious physical likeness. And He's going to bring me and you all the way home. All the way to our true home. And my home and your home is where Jesus is. When I know that that's true and when I know that is at work, then I am enabled and I am empowered to follow those examples that are around me. I am enabled and I am empowered to focus upon Christ rather than to be bogged down by all my stuff. <laughs> and I am enabled to press on, to stay in the race. Because what I was doing was looking behind. I'm looking behind and I'm seeing weakness, incompetence. And I know it's there. It doesn't go away. But I'm able to look forward and strain and press on. Straining forward with a focus upon the glorious, wonderful prize of my Savior and Lord Jesus Himself. So with God's help, with His grace and His gracious resources, you and I, brother and sister in Christ, will press on till the end. And we will give God all the glory because we will realize and recognize that it is He who has brought us all the way home. Would you pray with me? Father, we come asking for your grace to us to, to believe, to trust your word, trust your grace, and trust your work in our lives that we might know what it is then to walk in your ways and to walk trusting in you and to 
be Christ-centered and Christ-focused, Christ-dependent. Would you give us grace to live this way? We pray your blessings upon us. Lord, remind us who we are, where we are headed, and what you are doing in us and what you will surely complete because your power is unlimited. Pray your grace upon us and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.